Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome, everyone. My name is Bill Burkrod. I'm a correspondent with Reuters, and I'll be today's moderator. Oh, to paraphrase radio call-in shows, long-time reporter, first-time moderator. <laughs> today's program will be an hour long. It's a collaboration of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Reuters. And we're going to be looking at the role of cholesterol and heart disease, which, as you know, is still the number one killer in the United States, despite all of the advances we've seen. So we'll be looking at cholesterol and how it affects the body. We'll be talking about uh, the role of statins and these potent new biotech entries into cholesterol management that have just been approved, known as PCSK9 inhibitors, and uh, how low LDL, you know, the bad cholesterol should go. And we'll also, of course, importantly, be talking about you know, lifestyle management, diet, exercise, you know, all important things that you can do to, to stay off these drugs if need be. I'd like to introduce today's panel. To my immediate right, we have Dr. Patrick O'Gara, senior physician from Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Next to Dr. O'Gara is Dr. Ritger, director of Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention in Brigham and Women's Hospital. We have Dr. Joanne Manson, esteemed chief division of preventive medicine at Brigham and Women's. And then Dr. Frank Sachs, professor of cardiovascular disease prevention at the Department of Nutrition, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, right here. And uh, we'd like you to know you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. And you can also participate in a live chat discussion that's going on on the forum website right now. Now, to help frame the conversation and to sort of give an overview of how cholesterol uh, you know, it affects the body and, and its part in, in heart disease. We're going to turn to Dr. O'Gara here. Uh, Pat? Thanks very much, Bill. And uh, let me start by thanking my friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Lawrence Cohn, and his wife, Roberta, for sponsoring this, as well as several other forums of this nature uh, that are in the interest of the public health. I think it's extraordinary, and uh, we are all grateful for this opportunity. Uh, as Bill said, I'm a general cardiologist. I take care of patients for a living. I have a lot of conversations with folks who come to the office to ask me what they should do about their cholesterol, because I think it's no surprise even to the public uh, that uh, heart disease and stroke are the number one cause of death, both in the United States and worldwide. And the epidemic doesn't seem to be slackening one iota, especially when we look to see what the potential effects of obesity and diabetes will be on the world in which we live and the medicine that we practice in years to come. And I think uh, a conversation with a patient about where cholesterol fits on this spectrum uh, is something that every cardiologist, internist, pediatrician, nurse practitioner, and physician assistant now has because it's so highly prevalent. It's very important for patients to understand that cholesterol is just one risk factor for their development of vascular disease, particularly the vascular disease that affects the coronary arteries, the arteries of the brain, the kidneys, and all things in between. It's also very important for patients to understand that they're being bombarded with too much information in too short a period of time, and it's understandable that they would be confused 
as to how it is they should pro approach their cholesterol. Some patients, for example, are heart attack survivors. They are confused by information they read in the newspaper that applies to patients or persons who have yet to have a heart disease event, as a result of which they're ready to give up their medications. These are the people, for example, for whom medications are most strongly recommended. These are people who have graduated onto the team of having expressed heart disease for which very aggressive measures of secondary prevention are necessary. Yet they get confused about media reports as to how one should approach cholesterol in the pool of free-range chickens who have yet to make their way into a hospital or physician's office with respect to having had a previous heart attack or stroke. Very important that people understand that this is an individual conversation. You cannot turn on the tape recorder and have it apply to everybody that you might see in your practice. It's also important, I think, to emphasize that cholesterol is just one factor that people face with respect to their risk for the potential development of heart disease over their lifetime. And while they might be okay when they're 26, they may start to not be okay by the time they're 42. And what we're attempting to do is prevent them from getting into trouble when they're 65, 75, and 80, those years in which the incidence of heart disease events are really highest. This is a lifetime proposition. So medications alone are not the answer to a problem that is lifetime with respect to um, the uh, uh, point at which it may interfere with one's uh, livelihood. So cholesterol is important. Cholesterol is important in our bodies. As Dr. Manson was pointing out in our private conversation earlier today, it's the foundation of most of the hormones that we make and that uh, are responsible for how it is that we feel, act, and, and live. Uh, so we're not trying to eradicate cholesterol. We're trying to moderate it so as to at least take care of this one aspect of vascular disease. And there are lots of ways to do it. I think what you'll come out of this conversation with today is an emphasis on sort of a pyramidal approach to risk factor reduction, beginning possibly in middle school and in high school, where people need to know the benefit of exercise, maintaining a good body weight, maintaining a good diet, learning about food, how to prepare food, how to sit down with their family members and have dinner together, how to go to the grocery store, and then building on that with respect to making sure your blood pressure is okay, you never smoke, even if you think about smoking, you're not going to smoke, or some combination of that. And as then as the pendulum shifts and you get older and things start to happen and you begin to engage on these conversations about pharmaceutical means by which to lower your cholesterol. But we shouldn't lose track of this foundation of healthy living, whether it pertains to heart disease or any of the kinds of other problems that we face in internal medicine. Well, let me stop there. All right. Thanks, Dr. O'Gara. And uh, I'm going to turn to Dr. Ritger, who continues to be the person sitting next to Dr. O'Gara. <laughs> And uh, you've participated in clinical trials on statins and on these potent new PCSK9 drugs. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, about those and, and sort of how low LDL need, can go, should go. There's a big discussion on guidelines. Should we change them back? It just, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So let me also begin by thanking the panel. It's really an honor to be with such a distinguished group of friends and, and colleagues who contributed so amazingly to this whole field. Um, Pat has opened appropriately from the right place. Uh, work done in this school 
20 years ago demonstrated that if you maintained a reasonable diet, didn't gain a lot of weight, uh, didn't smoke, uh, and were healthy in many respects, that there's a very low rate of vascular disease in that group. And so all of this that we're talking about today is adjunctive at best to the things that we don't want to forget. And one of our biggest concerns in our trials that we run also is making sure that the background therapy is very aggressive. So this is about on top of diet, on top of exercise, on top of smoking cessation, how do we frame this? The second thing that Pat did that's very important to reiterate is uh, this notion of who are we talking about? So in physician terms, there's primary prevention. These are the folks that have not yet had any vascular disease but might be at risk for it. Secondary prevention, the folks who've had a myocardial infarction, they've had a bypass surgery, they've had an angioplasty that we're very concerned about. And I would even add a third group of patients, uh, people who have genetic conditions that put them at unusually high risk. And that genetic conditions are important because it's been involved in the development of the new drugs uh, that you're talking about. So biologically, uh, when you ask the question, how low can we go, uh, what we know is that all cells of your body actually produce cholesterol. So you can make the hormones that your body needs with surprisingly low levels of circulating bad or LDL cholesterol. There are genetic conditions where people have extremely low levels, yet seem to do fine in terms of having kids, living healthy lives. So uh, there's a hypothesis that we may be able to go lower than we traditionally have thought. Now it's a hypothesis still, and that's why the trials are directly testing it. But when you look back over the last 35 years of work, we have brought our numbers from very high to moderately high to lower and lower. Because as we've done that, we've continued to see benefits from the uh, preventive approaches and from these drugs. So uh, the drugs that are out there for practical purposes are uh, in two different categories. Uh, the statin drugs, uh, for better or for worse, are one of the widest selling class of drugs in the world. And they've been remarkably effective uh, in lowering rates of heart attack and stroke. If you're on these drugs, the meta-analyses that people do suggest 25-30% reductions for being on the drugs. Um, but as Pat pointed out, that's an absolute necessity if you're a heart disease patient and it's a conversation with your physician if you're in this other group of primary prevention uh, patients. Now the statins themselves are very interesting because they lower cholesterol through a very powerful mechanism. Uh, our group and others have suggested they also have some anti-inflammatory effects that may be part of why they're beneficial. Um, and many large-scale trials have been done for uh, since the mid-1990s, showing that very high-risk patients, moderately high-risk patients, lower-risk patients do benefit from the drug. The question becomes risk-benefit ratio. And remember, all drugs have side effects. So our group did a trial of relatively low-risk individuals showed tremendous benefits of being on the drug in terms of the relative risk reduction, but small actual benefits in terms of numbers. Uh, and we showed us some increase in the risk of developing diabetes. And so this is why when Pat is talking about a conversation, it's very important to have that. Some of the tension in the field is because moving beyond the statin drugs, uh, the biologist in me is extremely excited because we've had a new way of thinking about cholesterol reduction. You mentioned these drugs, the PCSK9 inhibitors. They uh, work through a mechanism that actually changes the way the receptor for cholesterol, it, it lasts longer on these drugs, and therefore we can sort of suck the cholesterol out of the uh, uh, bloodstream uh, more aggressively. 
the facts are these drugs have been shown to be effective at lowering cholesterol in people who don't tolerate a statin, that they lower cholesterol more aggressively in people who do tolerate a statin. They're remarkably effective among people with these genetic conditions uh, who have very high cholesterol levels on a genetic basis. And that's actually their main indication right now, is for people who really we have very few other options. And these are cholesterol levels way higher than most of us see uh, in regular practice. The question and the tension in the room, I suspect, is will these drugs also be used more broadly? Uh, I'm a trialist. Uh, I believe that trial data is absolutely required to provide the information to do this. Uh, there are more than 60,000 patients worldwide being put into large-scale trials of uh, three different versions of these drugs. Uh, and so we're uh, two to three years away from actually knowing do they lower event rates, heart attacks and strokes, not just lowering cholesterol. The preliminary data looks good, but like any drug development program, you need to know the actual numbers. You need to be able to calculate how many do we want to treat? Are there subgroups we want to treat? Do we want to limit their use? Do we want to make it more broadly used? How much will it cost? Uh, and these are the issues that I think we'll be discussing as we move forward. Absolutely. And I do think we may start to see some of those outcomes data even sooner. I think the companies have said uh, maybe late next year, early 2017, so maybe we'll have our answer. Before we uh, move on to our other two esteemed panelists, we have a clip from CardioSmart we'd like to show you. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we've talked about the pharmacological interventions. This is going to explore some of the lifestyle options. Uh, this is basically the video is uh, about a man who, who's a young man who's had a heart attack and is now working with his cardiologist to, to make some changes. So uh, here's the clip. Hey, good morning. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Dr. Gymnatis and Peter have formed a partnership. The goal, to make sure Peter's first heart attack is his last. Got to keep an eye on that cholesterol level. Yes. So we'll be doing a lipid test on you. Mm -hmm. Two, your blood pressure is not an issue, but we keep an eye on that. Right. Three is continue your exercise program. Mm -hmm. Four is watch your stress. Peter knows the drill. These days, lunch looks a lot different. Yeah, absolutely, I used to eat chicken wings, which uh, I'm not sure if there's anything worse for you. With a low-fat diet and medicine, Peter's cholesterol is down. It's a good workout. I'm still getting used to it. For the first time in 10 years, Peter is exercising. And four days in the hospital helped him quit his pack-a-day habit. Stop smoking, number one, uh, first and foremost, um, and diet and exercise. Um, three things you have to do, uh, I feel, at least from uh, since I've been looking into it. For a guy who never thought he would have a heart attack, he now knows how to prevent another one, thanks in part to Dr. Gymnatis. The cardiologist is providing the support and knowledge um, for things I need to do now and into the future to maintain my health. Um, and I count on the cardiologist uh, very much. And I think, yes, I, I think I am pretty lucky to be honest with you and, and kind of blessed that things turned out the way they did. All right, we'd like to turn now to uh, Dr. Manson. Joanne, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what we can do to put off going on these drugs or avoid them altogether, what kind of lifestyle changes we can or lifestyle, you know, we can adopt to, uh, to take care of these problems. Okay, well, thank you <clears throat> for the opportunity to participate on this panel. Um, I do approach this more from the perspective of a physician epidemiologist. 
in terms of what is really critically important to uh, public health and more disease, uh, a disease prevention uh, type of perspective. I completely agree with everything that Pat and Paul have said, and um, certainly the statins and the PCSK9 inhibitors are very good, very good medications, and they seem to be very, very effective. But I don't think they're the ultimate solution to the public health crisis that we're, we're facing right now. Um, we're really heading uh, toward a nation where there will be many children who are being started on, potentially started on statins and blood pressure lowering medications and diabetes um, medications in grade school and maybe looking toward decades and decades an entire lifetime of being treated with um, medications. And they may also be experiencing uh, shortened lifespans uh, because of all of these chronic diseases. And for adults, we may, with new guidelines that have been um, alluded to, we may be looking at nearly an entire population taking at least one medication for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, uh, glucose intolerance, and, and down the line. So I think that we really have to look at what can be done to prevent many of these uh, diseases that are occurring uh, that are so highly prevalent within uh, the United States and, and throughout the world. Um, the statins and other cholesterol-lowering drugs will address the targeted problem. You know, they're excellent for targeted high-risk subgroups, um, and they will address the cholesterol problem. But they'll do very little to address the problem of the increased risk of type 2 diabetes throughout the world, obesity, co cognitive decline, cancer, um, osteoporotic fractures. There are many other chronic diseases. So the question um, comes up, what will address those problems and be preemptive, preventive, in terms of uh, pr improving and promoting public health? And um, this was alluded to, but we do know that Lifestyle modifications really are the key. In the Nurses' Health Study, we found that just these very simple lifestyle factors, such as exercising, brisk walking, 30 minutes a day, having a heart-healthy diet, which Frank will talk a lot more about, um, maintaining a healthy weight, not smoking, will prevent 80% of heart attacks, 90% of type 2 diabetes cases, about half of strokes, and about one-third of cancer cases, there are many, many cancers linked to unhealthy lifestyle. It may even be uh, much, much greater than that fraction. Um, so I think that the evidence is quite strong but w that lifestyle factors can go a long way. But we have a real problem with very, very few people following um, these guidelines. And we don't really have a good system for affecting behavior change. We don't even have really, really good solid research on what strategies are most effective for promoting um, a healthy lifestyle, promoting a physically active lifestyle. It's interesting that a paper was just published this week in JAMA that suggested that sending four text messages a week encouraging healthy lifestyle, more physical activity, and um, had a, a dramatic effect in improve over six month period in lowering blood pressure, improving cholesterol, and making um, the people in, in the active intervention arm more physically active. And so we need some creative solutions. We need much more research to understand how to uh, promote healthy lifestyles throughout the population. But I, I think that this is ultimately 
where there's going to be just enormous impact on global health and hopefully reducing health disparities that occur by race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, so much more can be done in this area. So I think that the medications are terrific for high-risk, targeted uh, population groups, but they're, they're not the ultimate solution for um, preventing chronic disease uh, throughout, the, throughout the world. So I just want to emphasize that. <laughs> Amen. So, so perhaps we should be texting on the treadmill instead of behind the wheel. Well, we could get to some of those possibilities. <laughs> some, of, some of these uh, approaches may end up being extremely effective. And uh, Dr. Sachs, I know you like to talk a little about nutrition science. We've had a big public health victory over trans fats. Maybe a little bit about what's next and, and what people can do to get their diets in, in the right. You know, I know people think they, now they're taking Lipitor, they can have two more slices of pizza. I'm guessing that's not the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, I mean, first I'd like to say I, I've, I've treated many patients over 25 years at Brigham and Women's with cholesterol-lowering drugs, statins and the other drugs. and and they are very effective. It's a remarkable, I would say, uh, therapeutic triumph in medicine, the statins are. Uh, however, I've always emphasized uh, diet and lifestyle because real, uh, as Joanne was saying, really the benefits of optimizing your diet and lifestyle are actually a lot greater than the benefits of taking a statin. Um, you know, for like 80% reduction or 80% of heart attacks and strokes prevented. If you, if you optimize your diet, your body weight, uh, so you don't get overweight or obese, exercise patterns. Um, but of all that, I think the diet quality is really the most important component. Um, another thing is, is cognitive function. So the epidemiology is in, of large populations are showing that, that that pe people who are older, let's say 70, 75, who do what Pat O'Gara said, all of it, you know, good diet, exercise, normal body weight, um, those folks have no cognitive decline at all over the next 10 years. So up into the 80s, no cognitive decline. Now on average, there is cognitive decline. And if you're on the bad side of all those, fa all those uh, lifestyle factors, cognitive decline is pretty bad. Um, but what's, what's terrifically optimistic and critical for those of us who are getting up there in age is, uh, is, uh, is that we can, we, we can hopefully prevent any cognitive decline at all on average if we do, if we do all, of these, all of these healthy things. Now, there are a terrific amount of misconceptions about diet. So let's take that clip. What's wrong in that clip? First of all, he says he eats a low-fat diet. What, who says that's good? I mean, we in the American Heart Association, we've abandoned low-fat diets for decades now. So the idea of low-fat diet being good is, is incompatible with nutrition science. So what happens when people eat a low-fat diet? Well, they eat what he, what he ate. He ate a white bread, you know, <laughs> basically junk food, white bread a slab of uh, cheddar cheese, or whatever, American cheese, uh, looked like a ham, or, or was it turkey? I don't know, ham sandwich or turkey, loaded with sodium. I mean, and same with the, with the, with the bread, loaded, you almost always loaded with sodium. 
So the guy's got a huge bolus of sodium that he's taking into his system at that point, <laughs> plus saturated fat in the meat and the, um, and the cheese, and uh, refined carbohydrate, all of which in that is doing him no good at all, in fact. So it's a, I'm just, you know, I'm, the intention was very good, I, but, <laughs> but the execution was, was essentially opposite to what he should have been doing. Now, what's wrong with a low-fat diet? Well, low-fat diet can, can um, that doesn't take into account that there are many, f that there are fats in the diet that are healthy, oils. The um, monounsaturated and especially polyunsaturated oils are very beneficial. They're a lot more beneficial than low fat. So we personally, what I do is I, I make a point of, of uh, including in my diet healthy oils, polyunsaturated fats like corn oil or soybean oil, natural liquid vegetable oils, or for example, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil has been shown in a big trial as a component of the Mediterranean diet to, to lower uh, cardiovascular rates and death rate, I mean, improve survival. I mean, terrifically, terrifically, terrifically important. So, I mean, overall, we like to, the American Heart Association, which I, I was chair of their nutrition advisory committee for some years, we, we emphasize a dietary pattern, a healthy dietary pattern. We don't say high fat, low fat. You can actually eat healthy if, if, in a low fat diet if you choose healthy foods, not like what we what we saw. So for example, a Mediterranean dietary pattern has already been proven in a big randomized trial to improve survival and decrease cardiovascular events and also even cancer recently. And cognitive function. And cognitive function. <laughs> I mean, it's terrific. The DASH diet is another one. Um, some vegetarian diets are, are, are superb in that way as well. So the, I think we have a really optimistic message for people, us all, but we need to sort of execute that message uh, according to the best science that we, that we have at this point. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna turn back to uh, a little bit about these new biotech drugs that we've been talking about. We've got another clip we'd like to show you from, uh, from Stanford that talks about this, generic, uh, this genetic hereditary, you know, extreme high cholesterol to better understand these kind of patients. The, the condition is known as familial hypercholesterolemia, which is not easy to say. Uh, and we're gonna look at that clip now. It started a long time ago. I was 15. My father passed away at age 39 from a heart attack due to cholesterol and once that happened, the family doctor said, everyone now needs to be tested for cholesterol. This is very severe. And it was determined that three of us in the family had very high cholesterol. So at that time, I did go on medicine. And then after a while, I didn't want to do this because I was fighting it. I really just like, well, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I'm okay. So prior to turning 39, I discovered a bump on my elbow. I went to the dermatologist and it was we gotta take this out. So they took it out, did the lab test, came back, met with the doctor, and he said, this is calcified cholesterol. And if it's here, it's everywhere. This is very serious. And I'm gonna refer you to Stanford. And of course, my heart was pounding. FH is also called familial hypercholesterolemia. And it is a condition that results from the body's inability to clear high cholesterol from the blood 
This results in startlingly high cholesterol levels. In an adult, an LDL greater than 190 makes us suspicious that that person may have familial hypercholesterolemia. In Brenda's case, her LDL, I believe, was in the 300 or 400s, so it was quite excessive. The key about FH is that you have high cholesterol from the time you're born. So over the course of a life, your blood vessels are exposed to very high levels of cholesterol. And this very high cholesterol level is like a poison to the blood vessels. It results in huge accumulation of fatty deposits and cholesterol deposits in the, in the arteries that feed the heart and it leads to a much, much greater increased uh, risk of heart attack or stroke. Okay, so we'd like to talk about these new drugs a little bit more. Uh, you know, we recently had a study, I guess last year we found out that, that Zetia, which only modestly lowered LDL, had a, an incremental impact on lowering heart risk. Now these, these drugs we've seen in trials, Paul, you've seen, can lower cholesterol 45, 55, 65 percent. We've seen some incredible numbers. Uh, if it should turn out, that these outcomes trials that we're going to be seeing in a couple of years really do dramatically lower heart attacks and strokes. I would imagine that there'll be some more clamor for a wider population to use them and that the, the initial price tag on these is over $14,000 a year. That's, that's way above statins. So, so I'd like to talk about a, sort of what we can do about pricing and and you know we're going to have, this is going to be part of the discussion in the presidential campaign. It's already started. Uh, are you you know, are you concerned that insurance companies will try to limit the use of these drugs if we think that patients should get them? And, and do you think there's any, whichever of you, do you think there's any chance that either the drug companies or the government will figure out a way to rein in these costs so that people who need these drugs can get them? So, so Bill, I'm happy to begin that discussion, okay. but I want to make sure we tie the video the right way, because right. otherwise okay. we'll leave, I think, the wrong impression. This was a very important video. Uh, patients who have these genetic conditions FH are underdiagnosed uh, and educating the public, just like Frank is talking about educating the public about what they actually eat. We as a cardiovascular community need to do a better job educating the public about the family history issues here. Um, but understand how rare that was. Very, very important, but there's one genetic condition that runs about one in 300,000, and that's when you inherit both bad copies from mom and dad. And the other is running one in 300 to one in 500 where you get one of these genetic problems from either mom or dad. That's what that was about. Right. And no doubt about it, these new drugs on top of statin therapy are very effective there. That's what the Food and Drug Administration has really approved them for so far. Right. So I want to make sure we're clear on that because uh, patients who have, as noted in the video, an LDL above 190 who have a very prominent family history father, mother, uncle, brother, heart attack at age 40. That's when we want to worry about it. They need to see a physician and get a diagnosis. You're asking a much more global question Correct. about what might happen if the new drugs prove effective. And I think most of us are quite optimistic they probably will in terms of reducing the risk. Question will be, for who? Uh, for all patients already on a statin or for a small fraction of those already on a statin and how do we sort that piece out? Uh, I'm no healthcare economist by any means. Uh, the current price tag is exceptionally high. The good news is three different companies and potentially as many as five may have products in this arena relatively soon and so hopefully competition will bring us to a uh, issue here. I will say, and interesting others say, that this is probably an area where maybe for the first time we're going to see the payers 
uh, really exert their influence here as much as the physicians and the patients. And that's going to be an interesting twist uh, for the story. And, and we have seen some, you know, some competition bringing discounts, larger discounts, but, but are, are you worried about, you know, if we decide down the road that a wider group of patients would benefit from these drugs, that, that they, they will be limited access because of the, the excessive price? Well, I think, uh, Bill, it's only realistic to project in the short to intermediate term that there could be restricted access. And that's not to say that it would be wrong to restrict access in the short to intermediate term. Um, there's a lot of hope uh, about these particular uh, medications. It should remind us of the similar hope that we had regarding other medications in the past that did not pan out to convincingly reduce event rates rather than a surrogate marker like cholesterol uh, or uh, in other cases uh, CRP, which is uh, a, a different conversation. But uh, as Paul very carefully points out, assuming all of that homework is done and these medications that dramatically reduce cholesterol levels are found to provide incremental value, then I think the conversation is engaged. But it should start from the perspective of what are the patient populations for which these drugs are most effective with respect to reducing event rates. And one of the concerns, it seems, looking out over the road is not so much the FH patients or the heterozygous FH patients or patients uh, who have uh, a one in a million reaction to statin medications. It's the perhaps millions of patients right. who require statin therapy for secondary prevention who may be intolerant of statins because they have myalgias or they have some other symptom. It's very difficult to measure very difficult to measure. In most instances, there's not a biomarker that says, I know exactly why your muscles hurt or your joint aches because you take this dose of a statin medication, and if you took less, you'd have less of a biomarker to show for it. It's a very inexact science. And there is some skepticism that perhaps people are not as intolerant as they claim to be. Mm -hmm. You never wish to have that kind of, of uh, perspective when listening to a patient, having them tell you a story. You can only figure it out if you ask them to stop the medication and how do they feel. Um, but then you go from one to the next to the another in order to try to arrive at a, at a compromise solution. But release of this, these medications, uh, I think in an unfiltered way to a large number of patients with statin intolerance is a, a, a very worrisome proposition at this point in time looking ahead uh, and thinking about cost. Um, and I think Paul was also careful to point out that none of us are health economists. Right. We do need to be educated by the same people, for example, who made arguments about the treatment of hepatitis C. This, this story will be repeated where there are a lot of costs up front with respect to developing the drug, years that go by, a billion dollars to bring it. But what is the price point and how is it that health economists can educate us and the payers and the public and the government about where the appropriate price point is in anticipation of saying, 
there will be 100 fewer heart attacks and strokes and fewer vascular dementia over a time horizon of five years. Way too complicated, I think, for the average person to understand. Yeah, well, we are seeing some you know, truly innovative medicines in a variety of therapeutic areas now with kind of eye-popping <laughs> prices. Eye-popping. Uh, you know, and not, not nearly just in, in, in cardiovascular, you know, in oncology and uh, hep C, as you mentioned. I just wonder if any of you think we're, we're really going to see a point in this country where we're addressing the, the cost burden, not, you know, not obviously you're dealing mostly with patients, but, you know. Well, I, I'm, I'll let my other colleagues speak. I think absolutely. Um, we're, we're all concerned about this, and everyone should, not only providers, but also our patients and, and uh, our uh, government representatives. This is job one, and we not only have to reduce event rates, but we have to be effective, we have to be efficient, we have to be patient-centric, we have to be individualized. We have to be so many things that it's hard to balance that act going forward. But we cannot sustain $16,000 a year for the universe of folks who have difficult to document uh, intolerances to medications. That's, that's a very high price tag, I think. It's gonna, it's gonna take many years to understand the balance of benefits and risks of these new medications. And initially, they'll be tested in these high-risk, uh, highly targeted uh, patient populations. And those results will not necessarily be extrapolatable right. to the more general population um, without those risk factors. So it's really going to be a very long time before patients understand whether it's to their advantage to be taking these meds instead of statins or added on to statins where there might be a very small incremental gain and it might come at the expense of an increased risk of diabetes. I mean, it took a long time to understand that statins uh, increase the risk of diabetes and many of these other adverse events um, of medications are often found many, many years, been estimated at least seven years or so after uh, drugs are released. So I think that at this point, it really would be uh, quite premature for clinicians to be using these medications off-label or among um, patients who are, are complaining of relatively mild symptoms. You just open it up to millions and millions. Of, of patients right. at this it, point. I think that could be extremely problematic. And of course, with, with hep C, we're talking, we're using the cure word. We're talking right. about a finite amount right. of time. Yeah, and what we're talking about here quite, is drugs you would take right. for quite a lifetime. Different. It's quite different. Good point. Yeah, I mean, those drugs, the new drugs, are, are reduce LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, by a very large amount. Yes. And I, I and the indications are from the such one of the medium-term trials is that they're going to reduce cardiovascular disease accordingly. In other words, accordingly to the ex this big extent that they reduce uh, LDL cholesterol. However, unless they have adverse effects that counterbalance, unless but that remains to be seen. I mean, at this point, not the trials likely, are, are, are not showing adver are not right, showing right. adverse events. But what I'd like this ne next point I'd like to make is is a caution along the lines I think that you're, you're thinking, Joanne, is that, that you, you, you gotta get these, get any new drug out on the street, you know, to uh, out there, it, people taking it, because you don't always anticipate um, adverse reactions from the randomized clinical trials, like the, like the, the statin intolerance. And what is this statin intolerance? I agree with, with, with Pat O'Gara. You know, biologically, I'm not sure exactly what this statin intolerance is, but 
patients sure report it. You know, one out of ten, one out of five. Now, and and from the randomized placebo-controlled trials of the statins, we didn't see that. So what are we going to see with the PS PCSK9 blockers? Are we going to see some sort of unanticipated side effects um, or myalgias uh, and muscle aches themselves? But the final thing I want to make very, very quickly is that statist uh, studies are showing that people who go on statins um, really deteriorate in their diet and lifestyle. And it, it's just almost human nature. All right, I'm taking a pill. You know, like, give me that double cheeseburger, you know. Yes. Uh, and they gain weight also. Um, the, so that's what we really have to watch out because diet, exercise, it's at, the benefits are additive to statins, and right. statins can't uh, replace them. And, and to further muddy the waters, you, you recall we had a, a, a blinded study last year where patients who supposedly were statin intolerant were given statins and did fine. So yeah. it's hard to know. Right. So, so Bill, I would actually remind people that, you know, we all see patients and uh, uh, all of us are referred patients who can't tolerate a statin. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us go to every other day statin. We go to very different statin doses at very low doses because a great deal of benefit is just being on them, even a low dose. And you'd be surprised how many patients who think they can't take one, in fact, can. Right. Once they're told, so I always tell my patient, my, my, am I talking to physicians, I say, do not prescribe exercise and a statin the same day. Because they're going to go to the gym and get a muscle ache and blame the drug and not the exercise. <laughs> right. But that's part of this education right. process right. that you're hearing about. Prescribe so the exercise first. <laughs> right. 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 So, so with, with that, prescribe the exercise first. Let's turn back a little bit to lifestyle. Obviously, optimum is to start early. When, when my kids were very young, my, my wife actually uh, made a competition every night. Who had the most fruits and vegetables today? And if your kids are competitive, that actually can work. It, it took. So I'm wondering what ideas you might have. And also, you know, can you start later? If, say you've had a lousy diet, you know, lousy lifestyle most of your life, at 50, at 60, can you, can you get the benefit from turning that around? So I think the evidence is quite strong that it's never too late to start, but it's also best to start early. And I think Pat said, you know, even starting in middle school, I would say start before grade school yeah. with healthy lifestyle practices, encouraging healthy diet, encouraging physical activity. And kids used to go to the playground. They used to play with their friends outside. I mean, most children these days are very sedentary. This is a terrible problem. So I think we need to start early in life. Pediatricians really need to, uh, and I think many are getting very actively involved in thinking of this from a family perspective and encouraging family, family activities. Um, and physical activity and healthy diet from very, very early in life. But there is strong evidence that starting even midlife, later life, there's always benefit. There's always benefit to quitting smoking, always benefit to becoming more physically active, though you don't want to go from doing nothing <laughs> and being sedentary your whole life to being a marathon runner, but right. definitely brisk walking, something like that. And we can't hammer home the no smoking message enough, right? Absolutely, <laughs> never too late for that. Okay, we're going to actually now take a couple of questions from our online audience. Lisa, first. Yes, uh, thanks, everyone. Um, we have a very active chat going on, and we have questions coming in from all over the world, as I, I think you all know. So here's one from Thomas, I know exercise is good for the health, but I live in a polluted city with, in a developing country. Do the benefits of exercise really outweigh the risks? Sorry for my English, it's not my first language. 
So I think that you know air pollution is a really serious problem, and we need to address the issue of sedentary lifestyle from a number of perspectives. And one of the problems, the reason people may be sedentary, is there's air pollution, there aren't safe places to walk, there aren't safe parks, there aren't sidewalks. All of these come into play. But there are a lot of people who have opportunities to be more physically active, and, and they're still not availing themselves of those opportunities. So I'd like to see this issue of sedentary lifestyle addressed from public policy, urban design, the public health standpoint, as well as conversations between the clinician and the patient about the importance of physical activity. I think mobile devices can be harnessed. The mobile technology could be harnessed to improve physical activity, monitoring activity level, this text messaging, I thought was quite interesting. You know, these reminders, if for a number of purposes, seem to be uh, extremely effective, at least short term. We need longer, longer term studies. But definitely we need to address air pollution, and, but, but I, we can't solve all the problems today. I think that many people can exercise indoors if they are in a situation like that even just jumping or running on a, a low treadmill, or on a, uh, a trampoline or having a treadmill in the house, you can, you can stay physically active indoors if that's it's a real problem being outdoors. You can go to places where you're shielded a little more from the, the air pollution, but, but certainly it would be good to uh, address the air pollution problem as well. Great. Lisa, we have another question from the uh, yes. online audience. Yes, I think while we've got Joanne, because we've had a couple questions about women's women and cholesterol and if there are any special considerations. So while we've got you, since I know you study that. Right. So for most cardiovascular risk factors, um, the results in terms of how they predict heart disease have been very similar in men and women. There are fewer studies of the statins in women, especially lower risk groups. However, the, the trials that have been done generally have shown similar risk reductions for coronary disease and stroke um, with statins, including Paul's Jupiter trial showed uh, quite strong results in women. So, um, and certainly in secondary prevention, once a person has already had a cardiovascular event, a, a heart attack, um, the evidence is very, very strong that women benefit from the statins, they benefit from aspirin, um, their evidence is strong that they benefit from physical activity and, and healthy diet. So where some of the differences are um, is that diabetes is a much stronger risk factor uh, for heart disease in women than in men, and also that the HDL may be particularly important. The, the low HDL often clusters with obesity, diabetes, more of what's called the metabolic syndrome, cardiometabolic syndrome, and that appears to be very deleterious for women. But it's also not good for men. But there, there does seem to be um, some gender differences there. Pretty much overall, what the, these interventions that have been found to be uh, good for men are also good for women. There may need to be dose adjustments, especially for some of the you know, uh, medications that decrease uh, thrombosis. But overall, more similarities than, than differences, and there's a lot women can do to lower risk of heart disease. We probably need more women in the clinical trials as well, right? Absolutely. We, th this is one of the problems that there are fewer women in these trials, and very often it's interpreted as not having you know, results of efficacy in women, but that's due to the, the data being very sparse or being absent, not 
due to the fact that women don't, don't benefit. We definitely need more women in randomized trials. Big question from the Thank room. You. Dr. Cohen, did you have one? Yes, I do. First, I thought it was a, a terrific uh, panel, well moderated. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, really, the kind of information that we need to spread worldwide. And the smoking thing is, I mean, I've been to China 10 times, and the smoking over there, I mean, I see people running around, but they're smoking like crazy. So that, I think, is one of the worst risk factors worldwide. On the cholesterol, I still have, well, I'm a surgeon, as you know, I don't understand medicines that well, but <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask this question. Given the, the new medicine has some specific indications and statin has some specific contraindications, uh, are these drugs equally as effective in reducing cholesterol? <clears throat> uh, are they good to do, equally good in doing that if you had the, the, the right patient. In other words, no contraindications to this, uh, no contraindications to that. So that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is one better than the other in truly radically reducing cholesterol? Paul? So let me begin by thanking Larry and Roberta again for hosting these forums. And I need to thank Larry for having operated on dozens and dozens of my patients over many, many years. Uh, and that's actually what we're trying to avoid, right? Uh, okay. Outcomes were fabulous, but I'd rather they didn't go there. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think it also asks, you're asking in a sense, where's the future of this going? So if we didn't have this issue of price and they didn't have this issue of technology expansion. I, I believe in science. I really do. I think that progress is a phenomenal thing and this is a major step forward. Uh, the way these new drugs work has to do with recycling of the LDL receptor uh, and it's a brilliant piece of biology that really was only fundamentally discovered less than a decade ago and we already have these trials ongoing. Um, they lower cholesterol a lot. Uh, and as I said earlier, they lower it on top of a statin, but more than a statin if your statin intolerant would have been for you. But again, there's issues here of compliance. Uh, where this field is going is can we actually take some of that biology and make this a once a year or twice a year injection so we start thinking about uh, long-acting agents that actually would help us in a much broader way because as Joanne and Frank know, compliance with medications is a big issue. If you don't take it, it doesn't work. And so people trying to figure out long-acting approaches. Uh, it's a very exciting time for this field. Many people thought that cholesterol was over just eight to 10 years ago, and here we are having this debate. Um, the issue socially is what Pat and Bill have been talking about, the cost piece. But the biology of this is just exquisite. Do we have time for another question? Or? Yes, I, I would love to take another one. Um, this is from Stephen Albers. What effects do serum omega-3s and the omega-6-3 ratio have on cholesterol levels and cardiovascular health? Fish oil is doing the trials. doing a trial. <laughs> is that a plant? Well, first, let, let me, uh, <laughs> I'll address ha at least half of that. And this is this omega-6, omega-3 thing. Well, it's, uh, the, idea, the, the, the idea is that omega-3 like from fish oil or certain vegetables is good and omega-6 from other vegetables is bad. Well, that's just been, that, that, that's just been disproven many, many times. It never was a good, a good theory anyway because the omega-6 fatty acids like corn oil and soybean oil 
they reduce heart disease in randomized clinical trials. Um, so the ratio is meaningless. We want to see we want to see lots of omega-6s uh, being consumed in the diet. Those are good fats. Omega-3s are also beneficial, but the full extent of it, at this point, we don't quite know. We, yeah, thank you, Frank, for the segue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it remains extremely controversial. The omega-3s have definitely been shown to lower triglyceride levels, but have to be taken. Those who have high levels, of, that's a very targeted population, uh, but it takes four grams a day. It takes very high amounts. The moderate amounts do very little, only small reductions in triglycerides. The results for CVD have been very inconsistent. The randomized trials overall, at least recently, with all these other medications, um, including the statins and the, uh, the ACE inhibitors, et cetera, they've been generally neutral results of uh, supplementing with omega-3 uh, fish oil. Um, however, the observational studies do show very consistently that a diet that is higher in fish and omega-3s um, is associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. This may be because you're substituting the fish for what might be red meat or other uh, aspects of the diet that are not ideal. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just an example where, where a diet, in other words, food, diet. may have effects, beneficial effects that can't be reproduced by a, a supplement, pill, a, supplement. a pill. Yeah. But we'll see. We're doing yeah. a trial of nearly 26,000 men and women. So. But I think in the meantime, it's very, very important for patients to understand that these are not substitutes right. for statin therapy. And there is widespread lack of understanding of the lack of information that says omega-3 fatty acids prevent heart disease and stroke. People are willing to take omega-3 fatty acids and a half a dozen over-the-counter medications they can get in their pharmacy to the detriment of not taking medications shown to reduce events. And again, it gets back to this individual conversation. If you're not interested in taking a statin because you think something might happen to you over the next five years, why are you taking these other six medica medications? Do you think that they're useful? But we live in a society that is willing to accept this perceived benefit of over-the-counter medications to an extraordinary extent. It's a real uphill battle and one that should not be underestimated. And I would just add to that, because I completely agree, that the supplement, they don't substitute for statins and these well-established uh, effective medications, but they also don't substitute for lifestyle modifications and very often people feel that if they're taking a supplement, if they're taking fish oil, then they don't need to have a healthy diet or exercise or do some of these other things. So they're just not a replacement for it. They're, at most, they would be complementary, adjunctive. At, at this point, uh, we're going to ask each of the, of the panelists to for a, a brief, I'm afraid I have to stress brief, uh, just a takeaway message or, or a suggestion for policymakers. You know, if you had one thing you could stress out of this conversation, start with Pat. One thing to stress out of this conversation, <laughs> uh, from, a, from a policy point from of view? From a policy point, a yeah. solution. Uh. Right. I, I think from a policy point of view, um, and to pick up on something that Joanne had mentioned earlier, we have to start in grade school to influence the average understanding of uh, the relationship between 
lifestyle choices and the risk of chronic diseases, the so-called non-communicable diseases that dominate this century in developed countries and will continue to dominate across the world. And uh, from a policy perspective, it's about education, it's about nutrition, it's about healthy food choices, it's about safety, it's about the ability to exercise. Uh, and um, it's, it's about spending less time on your iPhone and in front of your television and more time doing things actively. It's not complicated. The question is whether or not we actually have the chutzpah uh, <laughs> to, to um, advocate very passionately for something that is so commonsensical it's easily discarded. Right, now we got the Yiddish from the Irish doctor. Yes. <laughs> I Paul? can't do it, bro. I don't know. <laughs> I could have said Michigas. Right? That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I, my piece of this thing is so important, and it's why these forums are this important, is this will boil down to education of the public. Uh, we already have approaches that really work. And as Pat pointed out before, we're very willing to use approaches that don't work very well, and that's an education gap. So I would argue for health literacy writ large. This idea that we have to get our patients to better understand uh, what we're talking about, uh, understand how to take their medications when they're indicated, that they must exercise, they must eat better. Uh, the issues that Frank is talking about in terms of even knowing what to buy in the supermarket, and uh, as Pat is talking about what to buy over the counter versus what your physician wants, that's a physician nursing responsibility, and we're not very good at it. Joya? I agree with the importance of health education, but I think it would be extremely helpful from a public policy standpoint to make a healthy diet, healthful foods more affordable and the foods that are really bad for us less affordable and less accessible. Um, and I think promoting a healthy lifestyle through urban design and the public policy, you know, making this the just, it's just so accessible to everyone. Uh, it would, it would also go a long way in terms of reducing health disparities. And lastly, I would really encourage the public to harness mobile technology for your benefit in terms of health, not just for you know making um, a reservation or a restaurant and things like that, but <laughs> <laughs> using open table, but do, using it to remind yourself to exercise and to have certain you know certain foods and so much can be done with with mobile technology and I think that this is a whole new approach and a new avenue that really could make a difference. But public policy is going to be key. And you may have well. sparked a whole new pricing discussion, <laughs> <laughs> Frank. Well, I think we're, we're we're all on the same page here. I mean, we, we there's a there's ter tremendous amount of settled knowledge about the benefits of statins and uh, the benefits of healthy diet and lifestyle. So the key is really how to apply that. And, I'll, how, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll just add a couple of things. Working with the food industry is really important. And some organizations like American Heart Association, the Culinary Institute of America, um, which we in the Department of Nutrition here work very closely with, both, both, in, both organizations, to um, first of all communicate what the science is to discuss it and discuss ways in which better, healthier foods can get phased in. Um, another, another way is by regulation. For example, the New York City Board of Health has been very proactive in, um, in, in nutrition labeling 
which is, is very important. Maybe not instantly, but over time, people will get to be able to interpret the, understand what a calorie is or wh how much sodium, you know, what is a good amount of sodium. So education is really key and application of our knowledge will really go a long way. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to encourage our viewers to continue this conversation if, they, if they'd like to on the forum website, which is forumhsph.org. Uh, I'd also like to tell the audience here and, and out there about the next two uh, panels coming up here. Uh, pretty hot button issues. Next one on October 1st will be revisiting race and criminal justice and health. And following that on October 6th, the European refugee and migrant crisis. So those should be fascinating. I want to thank a terrific panel and uh, thank you all for coming. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.